That being said, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Our Father and our God, we want to know you and we want to give you praise for who you are. So we pray that you would bless us with your special presence as we study you um, in this 12-week series that we would see and know that you are worthy of our praise and worship. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're starting. This is number one on your handout. This is the way I like to do it. I know some people don't like the way I do it. I like the way I do it. So this is number one. We're starting a 12-week study on the attributes of God. And I have previously taught this before about five years ago. I've made massive modifications I think the lessons are clearer, and I've tried to shorten them to give us a little more time for discussion. But we'll be focusing on the personal perfections of God when there was no creation, no heaven, no sin, no angels to sing his praise existed before there was such a thing as time, namely the internal works of the divine being. And I want to emphasize that um, word internal because the Latin for that is opera ad intra. It means internal works. So what we're talking about is God in himself, okay? When we talk about God in relation to creation and everything, uh, we'll, we'll call that opera ad extra, wor external works. But what we're really looking at is who is God in himself? So we're gonna be using that ad extra and ad intra a lot, so um, remember that. So this will be a study in the Christian theological tradition of metaphysics. So you can tell your friends, what are you studying in Sunday school? Metaphysics. They'll be blown away, okay? Metaphysics is just a fancy words that means the things beyond physics, the things beyond the physical, okay? So, and metaphysics is the branch of philosophy examines the fundamental nature of reality. But for Christians, this always starts with the study of God. This is number two in your handout. We're going to focus our attention on the, on the undivided essence and attributes of God, which is shared by the three persons of the Trinity using the classical Christian theism model. There's a lot of different models out there. This is the historic one. This is what the Westminster Confession is based on. This is why I don't want to argue it with you, okay? Because there's a lot of bad theology out there that people are reading. So, we will affirm only what God has said about himself in the Bible, which includes deducing. Deducing truths about God by good and necessary consequence, as the Westminster Confession says. So. Can we see God? No. Why not? He's a spirit, okay? But God wants us to see his glory. So he created a wonderful, beautiful world to reveal to us that he is there and that he is awesome. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because he has revealed it to them, for his invisible attributes, and that's what we're studying, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived or recognized ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So as we shall see in this study, it is difficult for the finite, that's us, to grasp the infinite, that's God. However, what God does reveal about himself in creation and scripture is real and useful. And as we'll see in this, uh, for example, 2 Timothy 3:15 and 16 says, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So, and this is number three in your handout, it is necessary for salvation that God is knowable. But because God is infinite and we are finite and limited, we can never fully understand God. This is known as his incomprehensibility. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Okay? So incomprehensible means difficult or impossible to understand or comprehend. Now, the term incomprehensibility can be somewhat misleading. It doesn't mean we, we have no way of knowing anything about him. It just means that no human mind can fully comprehend all that God is. It means that our knowledge is not exhaustive. This is number four in your handout. God is imminent, which means he's intimately present. But he remains incomprehensible and transcendent independent of the material universe, beyond all known physical laws. He's above us, okay? Unfortunately, many people have formed an idol in their mind and called it God and maybe even worshiped it because it is more convenient than contending with a God who is incomprehensible and mysterious. And at the end of these 12 weeks, you're gonna be left with a lot of mysteries, okay? And by the way, this is where heresy usually comes in. People don't like mystery, so they try to define it in unbiblical, unorthodox, and even heretical ways. So, so if we could define God, search him out to exhaustive perfection, say everything we know about him that could be said, God would not be God. The knowledge of God is, as Psalm 139.6 says, too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. A God that I understand would be less than myself and therefore not God. And the beautiful thing about having a God who is bigger than I can understand is it means that he has purposes beyond my reasoning too, beyond my ability to conceive. But incomprehensibility also means that we never learn too much about God because we'll never run out of things to learn about him. Now, it's also often said that God is ineffable. And this is number five on your handout. Because God is infinite and we are finite and limited, we can never fully describe God. This is known as God's ineffability. The word ineffable literally means incapable of being expressed in words or indescribable. You know, and we have this hymn we sing all the time. So worship the king, O measureless might, ineffable love while angels delight. It's indescribable. Words can't reach to it. So to say that God is ineffable 
would mean that our language is incapable of capturing God. He is so awesome, we don't have words to describe it. And a lot of times in today's world, we've lost the sense of the awesomeness of God. Martin Luther, who's quite a character in his remarks, once said that those around him spoke to God as if he were a shoe clerk's apprentice. Uh, A.W. Tozer says, when we draw closer to God, you see, we begin to understand just how much greater he is than anything we can grasp or describe. Our instinct is to make something, make God into something manageable and controllable. But God in condescending love has by revelation declared certain things to be true of himself. These we call his attributes. And he's provided enough knowledge of these to satisfy our intellects and ravish our hearts. And regarding ineffability, Augustine, and this is number six on your handout, said, and yet, although nothing worthy of his greatness can be said about him, God has condescended to accept the worship of men's mouths and has desired us through the medium of our own words to rejoice in his praise. So in the book of Proverbs we read, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So in order to fear God, however, we must know something about who he is. The desire to know about God should be the desire of every Christian. Yet we must never seek such knowledge with the wrong motivation. The study and nature of attributes of God is one of the most awe-inspiring studies any Christian can engage in. But the depths, and we're going to get into some depths, into some heights, the depths of the subject can lead some folks to be puffed up in their minds and filled with pride. And as we learn more about the nature of attributes about God, our response should be humble adoration, praise, and worship. And this is number seven on your handout. The knowledge of God gained by the Christian cannot be an end in itself. It is to draw closer to God in loving faith. In faith, the Christian is called to know God, to love God, to fear God, and to worship God. The following scriptures show that there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God himself. John 5, 39 to 40 says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is there that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. James 2.19 says, You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. A.W. Tozer, who wrote in the, his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Tozer continues by saying, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure 
of her witness concerning God. So what we think about God determines what we think about Jesus, salvation, eschatology, culture, politics, and even Sunday morning worship. This is number eight on your handout. Once we have decided who God is, we chase after that image. Okay? The application becomes obvious. So it's critically important that we gain an accurate understanding of who God is through the Bible, God's own self-disclosure. Otherwise, we will inevitably move towards a fabricated false image of him, you know, where we build a God we like, a God we can understand, a God who's less than us. So in this 12-week study, we're going to be looking at what are known as the attributes of God. So we might refer to it as his, God's divine essence, his nature, or the stuff of deity. And out of his mercy and grace, he has chosen to reveal himself to us using human language. And since our thoughts are not, not like God's thoughts, his thoughts must be described to us in human terms we can understand. And many vital truths about God cannot be expressed except through figures of speech that accommodate the limitations of human language and understanding. Everything that God says to us is true, but it's also true that everything God says is accommodated to our finitude, okay, to we're finite creatures. So if God spoke to us without that accommodation, we would be consumed. So, this is number nine on your handout. When God describes himself to us, he often condescends to describe himself in human analogies, such as metaphors. Metaphors like a fire, a fortress, a rock, a potter, a shepherd, etc. Okay, those are metaphors. What is a metaphor? A metaphor is a literary figure of speech that describes a subject by asserting that it is on some point of comparison the same as another otherwise unrelated object. A metaphor directly equates the subject and the object, and it doesn't use the words like or as, as a simile does. And we use metaphors all the time like, I am the black sheep of the family. Am I really? No, that's a metaphor, okay? Or we use sports metaphors like, he dropped the ball, man. That's a metaphor, okay? The Bible uses metaphors all the time, like God is a consuming fire, okay? So metaphor is a device for seeing something in terms of something else. It brings out the thisness of a that or a thatness of a this. This is number 10 on your handout. The Bible also uses anthropomorphisms. It comes from the Greek anthropo, which means man, and morph, which means form. And that's attributing human qualities, human qualities to the Lord to describe his actions. Herman Bavinck in his Doctrine of God said, Scripture does not merely contain anthropomorphisms. On the contrary, all Scripture is anthropomorphic. For example, God is said to have a face in Psalm 27 to illustrate his presence. He's said to have eyes in Proverbs 15 to illustrate his omniscience. He's said to have ears in Isaiah 59 to show his ability and readiness to hear his people when they call to him. He has spoken of having a nose to show that he accepts his people in Christ as a sweet-smelling savor 
or his rejection of people as something that stinks in his presence. He's, he has a mouth, which is ascribed to him in Isaiah 1 to illustrate his commands and his promises. And his arms are for the purpose of showing his power and strength. And there are also other passages in Scripture, and this is number 11 on your handout, other passages in Scripture would use what theologians call anthropopathisms. That comes from Greek, anthropo meaning man, and pathos to fill or suffer. Attributing human passions and emotions to God that have a figurative, not a literal meaning. These are used when God is said to respond to events in a manner comparable to human passion, like when he's glad, or when he's sad, or when he's happy, or angry, etc. So an anthropopathism is when human emotions and effective responses are ascribed to God to illustrate who he is and what he does. For example, Genesis 6-6 said, says, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Does God have a heart? That's your first clue, okay? We can't grieve God, and when we get into further lessons, you'll really understand what I mean by that, okay? That's an anthropopathism. These anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms must be mined, however, for their meaning. While it's true that they're figures of speech, we must nonetheless acknowledge that such expressions mean something. So instead of getting caught up on how big God's hands are, we can marvel at his works of power. Um, instead of wondering about God's sense of smell, we can read the text in order to discern how we may please him. Instead of worrying about reconciling God's immutability and passability, which are both separate lessons in this series, uh, with portraits of God which depict him as getting angry, we should read scripture, scripture and understand what sort of evil he has eternally set himself in opposition to and flee from it. This understanding is going to be important in later lessons, which is why I wanted to talk about it now. So the way to see God is to come to know him through a study of his character as he revealed himself in Scripture. Um, but do we put God in a box? Reformed theologians are occasionally accused of putting God in a box. It might be said that we Reformed have God have got God figured out, stuffed, and mounted on the wall. And to some extent, this may be true. It may seem that we have erected barriers around him, seeking to constrain him within a system of theology. And we often seem to think that the tighter we box him, the greater power we'll have to bring to bear when we release him. Because we may put God in a box in our mind, this no way affects God's character or ability to act. He cannot be bound. So we need to reconcile God's revelation of himself with our ability to understand him. And again, the Bible is clear. This is not complete knowledge. It is only and exactly what we need to know about him. He told us no more than we need and no less than he considered beneficial. As Francis Schaeffer pointed out, and this is number 12 in your handout, God has given us true knowledge of himself 
but not exhaustive knowledge. God is the one who sets the limits as to what we can know and how much we can know. God sets the limits. We should do well to keep several passages in mind. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Isaiah 55.8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the first way we can put God in a box is through our misunderstandings of him and his nature. We may, for example, try to define God that is simplistic or inconsistent with who he is. And a classic example of this would be God is love. Okay? Of course this is true because the Bible affirms that God is the very embodiment of love. Love is part of the very fabric of his being. But this is simplistic if we do not take into account God's other attributes, such as his wrath. This is number 13 on your handout. If we create a definition or understanding of God that overemphasizes one of his attributes at the expense of others, we have constructed a false view. We have put him in a box of our own making. Everybody good so far? Any questions so far? I must be a great teacher. A second way we can put God in a box is through creating or assuming knowledge of him that he has not revealed to us. When we understand our limitations, we will have to conclude that there are sim simply some things that are simply too wondrous for us to comprehend, often called mysteries. Mysteries, okay? God is not a riddle waiting to be untangled by the powers of human reason. We are to let God be God, realizing there are some things that he has withheld from us based on necessity. Those things that we simply cannot understand. Okay, Where God has kept silent, so should we. So for example, if we feel we have mastered the doctrine of the Trinity, we have placed God in a box of our own making. For the reality is that God does not give us sufficient information about this doctrine to ever master it. So my goal here is not to teach you how to put God in a box. Now, the uh, divine attributes are what we know to be true of God, but he doesn't possess them as qualities, like a recipe or, you know, adding Lego blocks to a model, okay? They are how God is as he reveals himself to his creatures. Love, for instance, is not something God has. It's not an ingredient which may grow or diminish or cease to be. His love is the way God is. And when he loves, he is simply being himself and so on with the other attributes, omniscience, holiness, and you'll see this as we progress in the lessons. So an attribute, man, we're doing good on time here. An attribute is some characteristic that is permanent and distinguishes a thing or person from other things or persons. 
In the case of God, we find a large number of attributes which distinguish him from all other things, persons, and gods. These attributes are divine perfections which are essential to the nature of God. And in Trinitarian grammar, the terms substance, being, nature, and essence, they're all exact theological synonyms. So let's take a quick look at the Westminster Standards in the back of your handout. West, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Notice that the question asks what is God, not who is God. And the text proof for this question comes from John 4.24 where Jesus says God is spirit. Jesus is not saying that God is a spirit as though he were, he's one of many spirits. Instead, he is saying that the very nature of God is spirit. God is non-corporeal. He doesn't have a body. Hence, all the anthropomorphisms, okay? Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, section 1 says... There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Notice again that the Westminster Confession of Faith says that God is a most pure spirit. Again, this teaches that God is above sensuous perception. In other words, that he's not a material being. But he is not an ethereal force that permeates all things, as some Eastern religions suggest. And the confession says that he has no body, nor parts, nor passions. This means that he has no material organism of any kind like humans do, and that his essence cannot be divided into parts, like Lego blocks. Just no parts and pieces. And that he doesn't experience the passions to which man is subject. So the perfections of God are attributes without which he would cease to be God. And God's essence is limitless, unmeasurable, and unfathomable, and inestimable in every way. He cannot be his attributes more than he already is. And that is what it means to be perfect. So whichever divine perfection or attribute we are discussing, it is true of God in infinite measure. And for that reason alone, our God is the one who deserves our worship. Now there's many ways to uh, classify the attributes of God. Some theologians have spoken of attributes of positive and negative, others as absolute and relatives, others as natural and moral, and still others as communicable and incommunicable. 
and the latter of these, communicable and incommunicable, is the Reformed tradition, so that's the way we're going to be looking at them. This is number 15 on your handout. The incommunicable, unshared attributes, these emphasize the absolute distinction between God and the creature. The incommunicable are those which cannot be bestowed, but which of necessity exist only in the triune God. The number 16 is the communicable shared attributes. These are attributes that God shares with his creatures to some extent. So for example, we're commanded to be wise, merciful, and just in imitation of God. It should be pointed out, however, that what we see in man is only a finite, limited, and imperfect likeness of that which is infinite, unlimited, unlimited and perfect in God. So attributes, in short, describe and reveal the essence of God. They reveal God's nature, his essence. So we should not think of God as consisting of anything other than divinity. The substance of God is, is God, not a bunch of ingredients taken together that together yield deity. This is number 17 in your handout. Each attribute has all the attributes. The attributes sing in harmony. And if you pull at the string of any one of these attributes or essences, you unravel a ball of theological problems. And that's what we're going to talk about in the doctrine of simplicity. That's, that's lesson number three. S theology is like a spider's web, where each string in the web is somehow connected to the others. And if you break just one string, which is real common, by the way, you cannot believe how much bad theology is out there, the consequences can be disastrous for the entire web. And the thin veneer of truth that is varnished over most heresies make them seem outwardly innocuous. All heresy usually begins with a partial truth regarding God, and that is the way of the cults to reduce biblical truth, to make God comprehensible and understandable in your minds, to, to solve all the mysteries. Cults don't like mysteries, okay? Tim Keller uh, once rejected attempts to elevate one attribute of God over another by saying, at the cross, all the attributes of God win. In fact, the cross of Jesus is probably the supreme demonstration and manifestation of the divine attributes. Do you want to see God's love? Look at the cross. Do you want to see God's holiness? Look at the cross. Do you want to see wrath? Go to the cross, and so on. We read in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Did you catch that anthropopathism there? I delight, okay? We're going to talk about these effective responses and what they mean, but... Um, 
That's just a typical example of an anthropopathism. In Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So in the last days, there will be many who have accumulated vast knowledge of God, but who have never truly known him. They will know about God without ever really knowing him. They will be cast into the lake of fire despite their great, great knowledge of the Bible and biblical theology. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to teach these lessons. There is so much bad theology out there. And it gets worse. You know, I taught this five years ago. And I've greatly modified these lessons. I think they're a lot better. But I cannot believe, even in Reformed circles, it is, it is terrible. That's why I'm teaching this. This is, this is what the confession is based on. Okay? Classical Christian theism. Um, and the bad theology goes beyond bad and unorthodox. In many cases, it's extremely heretical. And uh, that's what I'm talking about, that thin veneer of Christian truth that uh, people will want to apply to a lot of doctrines. So anyway, although distinct from the world God created, God is not distant, aloof, or uninvolved. He is not abstract, but a personal being. He created the world as the theater of his unfolding drama. God is, as it were, a cosmic artist directing the world down to its minutest detail. He created us to glorify him, and the more we reflect on his greatness, the more our souls are inflamed to adore him and worship him for his magnificence. So it's my hope that God will use this study to change your life and compel much worshipful amazement, that you'll have a grander, bigger, more glorious picture of God on high than you have ever imagined, that you will see yourself as a blessed character in the divine artwork, that you will see that to glorify God is to praise his attributes, that you will see that the gap between man and God is infinite. And only through the mediation of the God-man, Jesus Christ, can we truly enjoy God. That you'll see brokenness, repentance, the joy of forgiveness, and a taste for the magnificence of God, and that your soul would be comforted from seeing God as he's revealed himself. So, here's our core syllabus, and this is on your handout too. Number one is the intro um, today. Number two is aseity, self-existence and independence. Some people call that the foundational attribute of God. Um, my favorite is number three, the unity or simplicity. I've, my view is when I hear people talk, we, we have a tendency to veer toward tritheism. Unity simplicity is the thing that keeps God one. 
okay, in his triunity. It's, it's a really great lesson. Uh, number four is God's eternity and omnipresence. Number five is his immutability. And you're going to start seeing that these, all of these attributes do tie together. That, and it's kind of a building block thing. And um, you'll see how immutability uh, is very much related to impassibility, which is in week number six. Then we'll move on to God's communicable or shared attributes, his omniscience, his knowledge, his truthfulness. Number eight, lesson eight, omnipotence, sovereignty, and freedom. Number nine, love, goodness, and mercy. Lesson 10, holiness, righteousness, justice. 11 is jealousy and wrath. That's a scary lesson, believe me. One of the things we're going to talk about in that lesson, though, is the problem of evil, all right? This is one of the things that drives a lot of things, people from Christianity. And in the last le lesson, we're really going to talk about the Trinity, the triunity, the same essence in three persons. And by the way, that's not an attribute. Okay? Trinity is not an attribute of God. You'll see why when we get to it. And then we're going to talk about Jesus, who has two natures in the same person. I mean, that's even phew, more of a mystery. So these lessons will be challenging and mind-expanding. Hopefully your souls will be stirred as our imaginations expand to grasp the greatness of God and his difference from us. And some might say a study like this is for pastors and seminary students or philosophers and theologians or professors and scholars. No, it's for Christians. It's for people who want to know their God. That's all I got. We're on time here. Plenty of time to ask any questions, make any comments. Yes. Maybe we do need a microphone. I can't hear you. The answer to number two is deducing. One of the reasons we deduce truths, for example, the doctrine of simplicity. Many theologians have excluded the doctrine of divine simplicity from their list of God attributes, and one of their problems is it doesn't say that God is simple in the Bible. No, but it's deduced. So Neither is the Trinity. That's another one of the truths that we deduce. Yes? The answer to number 14 is mysteries. We're going to do our best to teach these lessons to the extent that God has revealed himself, but we're going to be left holding a lot of mysteries, okay? And that's fine. God has only revealed to himself what we can comprehend, you know, so. I had a question about number um, 11 and how, if you could help me articulate it a little bit better with um, the anthro... Anthropopathisms. Anthropopathisms, because I've always wondered about how to articulate when in the Old Testament it says God remembered Lot, God remembered Noah, having that, well, does that insinuate that he forgot? Well, no. So just if you could please go over number 11 for me. One again. of the things you're going to see, particularly when we, when we get into God's attributes of immutability 
and impassibility that is very common in a lot of contemporary theology for theologians to say, we'll see passages where God forgot or when um, Moses tells God, please don't destroy him, and, and God repents. God doesn't repent. God is unchangeable. He's impassable, okay? Impassable means without passions. He has, he has emotions, but he is not... Um, because he's immutable, he doesn't change his mind, okay? So one of, the one of the things people like to do is to take these anthropopathisms, and I've even seen it in a lot of contemporary Reformed theology, which just breaks my heart, where people will say, uh, I'm not going to bring up names because I don't want to burst any bubbles around here, but people will, it's called like um, theistic, theistic relationalism. People have an attempt. They want God to be relational to us. And so when God says, um, I repent, or I delight, or he's sad, or God forgets, um, people say, nope, that's when the Bible says that, that means God is mutable. He's not immutable. And therefore, we have a God that we can relate to. Now we're all happy because we can see how God is just like us. He relates. Now, one of, the, one of the things we're going to see in these lessons is that God is so far above us. And any attempts to try to uh, foist our humanness on him, however common that is, is not who God is. And it's, it's not a God we can worship. Does, it, does, does that help answer your question? Thank you. It does help with my question because that also was leading to another question for a later time, but just about prayer and... I've heard that you pray to change God's mind. Nope. You can't nope. do that. Nope. So then we'll talk people are about like, that. why do you pray? <laughs> we'll talk Thank about you. that. You know, and these are the types of mysteries in bad theology that we come up with. Um, well, let's hold that one for those lessons. But that's, those are perfect questions. That's one, one of the things that we said in the beginning of this lesson is how we view God is foundational for all of the theology. A lot of, a lot of people come up with theology they like, and then they back it into who say they say God is, okay? So, for example, there's, there's a, a, a common um, theology known as open theology, which has been around 10 or 15 years. And open theology, this is God's open. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. God's sitting there like the rest of us. Or really, even in Arminianism, okay? Where God's up there saying, gee, I hope they like me down there. I hope they accept me. God knows. God is sovereign. He's decreed everything that happens. Number, yes? Numbers 1, 3, and 4, please. 1, 3, and 4. Number, number 1 is... Intra, opera ad intra. That's the internal works of God. Uh, three is salvation. We have to know God for salvation. And four is independent. I want you to get this idea. We'll talk that, about that concept 
in our second lessons on God's aseity that he's independent of creation. Tim. they don't mean that he actually does. Again, they tell us something about God, okay, because what God does, and as John Calvin says, God is lisping to us, or as Bavink says, it's all anthropomorphisms. It tells us about, a lot of it's called phenomenology. I mean, I don't want to get really into deep, and a lot of these discussions are very philosophical, okay? But what they do tell us is, for example, God grieving. That tells us not something about God, but what was it he was grieving about? So it's used as, as a metaphor to communicate to us some things that God dislikes, okay? But God is not sitting there going, oh, man, I am so grieved, I am so... I'm so sorry. I mean, that's, that's, that's not, huh? What does he do? We'll talk about that when we get to the doctrine of simplicity and impassibility. Hi, Mark. Um, do you have a resource or something we can read to prepare for next week's on aseity? Like a good... Resources? Yeah, like a book. Yeah, I call them the A-team. Athanasius, the hero of the Nicene Creed. Uh, Augustine, who's really helped us with our understanding of the Trinity. Um, Aquinas, I mean, Thomas Aquinas, and then Anselm. Those, of, of those four theologians, almost everything else is derivative. Uh, I have read hundreds of books and websites and um, there is a book that is um, None Greater by Matthew Barrett. That's a really good book. I've, by the way, I'm not teaching you. I have stolen stuff from everybody I can, but I've done so to, to because some people say it better than others, okay? Mark, what was the name of that book again? None Barrett. Greater. None, None greater, greater by Matthew Barrett. None Greater by Matthew Barrett. It's really a good book. And, it's very orthodox, okay? There's, there's a lot of stuff out there by familiar theologians that I could not recommend. Uh, uh, James Dolezal has written, he's, he has written some excellent stuff on the doctrine of simplicity. I mean, and to me, it's just really eye-opening. One of the things we have a tendency to do is to disregard the oneness and the unity of God. And the doctrine of simplicity really helps keep us in that lane. Okay? So I think oftentimes we have a tendency to veer toward tritheism, where we think God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit are not three persons, they're three people with different ideas, different wills, different knowledge. No, they're not. That's what the doc So James Dolezal is really incredible. D-O-L-E-Z-A-L. We better close in prayer. We're running late here. Our Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We pray that as we go forward in these lessons that your spirit would be our teacher, that we would be able to understand 
uh, how it is you're revealing to yourself, yourself to us, and that we might see how awesome you are and how worthy of our worship that you are. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.